Welcome to Afterthoughts, everybody. I'm your host, John Garcia. Joining me tonight on this wonderful episode is Ryan King. Did I introduce myself? I meant to introduce myself. My mouth didn't speak. (laughs) (laughs) And Michael Dixon. What's up, guys? Uh, Yeah, excited to, to get into this movie. Yeah, I uh, I too am. I'm feeling a lot of things, and I'm not expressing them with my <laughs> with my words the way that a Wes Anderson character probably should. But uh, yeah, on this episode, we'll just cut right into it. You know, we'll take the freight train straight into the discussion. Uh, aliens coming down, whatever the fuck, it's all out there. Uh, we're talking about Asteroid City, Wes Anderson's new 2023 film. You're not here. We're not there. The car exploded. <laughs> Come get the girls. I have to stay here with Woodrow. I'm not the chauffeur. I'm the grandfather. Where are you? Asteroid City, Farm Route 6, Mile 75. Last train. Junior stargazers and space cadets. Each year, we celebrate Asteroid Day, commemorating September 23rd, 3007 BC, when the arid plains meteorite made Earth impact. Toledo. That's Mitch Campbell. You're very good in the one about the tramp in the brothel who Thank gets you. amnesia and Thank becomes you. a pediatrician. You were very awesome. Actually, maybe my favorite character I've ever I don't seen. know why nobody else liked it. Oh. So Asteroid City is, uh, like Wes Anderson, he's done so many things in so many, it's all the same style, the Wes Anderson style. You know the look and feel of his movies. There's pastel colors. There's symmetry in every shot uh, and sometimes intentional asymmetry. Um, but it's always so meticulously organized. He decided, what if I took that and I uh, directly injected it into the existential implications of the 1947 Roswell incident? Um, and that's basically kind of Asteroid City. And then it's wrapped into this meta layer of a screenplay written by, I don't know the character's name. It's just Edward Norton because everybody in a Wes Anderson film <laughs> is just the actor's name. That's all that I really recognize. Yeah. Doing a Matthew McConaughey impression, yeah. I think. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey impression, I think, according to his sexual subtext. I don't know. Um, but yeah, uh, this movie just fixates on a stage writer who is trying to um, tell the story of Asteroid City, this 1940s town or 1950s town in the middle of nowhere, um, just with like a few bars and whatever, and this tiny space cadet camp that's hosting an event uh, sponsored by the military. Hey, there it is. Of course it is. (laughs) Um, With like megaton bombs going off in the distance constantly for nuclear testing. People just criming it up on the street, the only street that runs through that town. (laughs) Um, And a bunch of characters that seem to be enduring emotional grief and duress all throughout, um, but delivered with that comical whimsy that Wes Anderson delivers in his films. So, uh, yeah, this movie, I picked it because, one, it's in theaters. I was going to go see it anyway. But two, we haven't really talked about a Wes Anderson film on this podcast. Um, And I really enjoyed it. I think it might be I don't want to say it might be my favorite. It might be one of, it's one of my favorites. I'm not sure which one is my total all-time favorite of Wes Anderson. I'm a little on the fence about some of his movies and I've always had like a going back and forth of whether I'm annoyed with him or not. Yeah, (laughs) Um, uh, I I get that. So I was like, yeah, let's just go see this and we could talk about it. I I didn't expect it to be quite as weird as it is, quite as meta and layered as it was. Um, Everything else in it, I can't even really speak to like, whether I loved, I loved the score. The score is just kind of the same whimsical extension that most 
uh, Wes Anderson movies have. It's like everything that I'm going to comment on is something in another Wes Anderson film that I probably didn't like, but is the same somehow. Yeah. Uh, and, and that to me is just perplexing. So, um, yeah, overall, I liked it. I found it to be compelling, the character drama within it. I also was more invested in than I have been in, in some other ones, like French Dispatch I saw. And it was kind of more the anthology didn't carry me too far in how it told its stories. Still enjoyed the ride at the end of it. But um, this is one of those that like I think is the most memorable for me. Uh, along with like Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox. I really like his animated stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I'll kick it over to Ryan, who took a gummy for this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Our field reporter uh, from the high stadiums. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Wes Anderson is, I feel like you love him or you hate him. And then I think even within liking some of his movies, you either love it or you hate it. Like every, I don't think everyone's like, oh, there's someone out there maybe that's like, oh, every Wes Anderson is great. But I do think it's like you either like some of them or you don't. You either get along with it or you don't. He has um, his fanboys that like really love every Wes Anderson movie for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it, fun, like funny enough is that Monday morning I drove and dropped my family off at the LA airport and there was this just big fucking billboard for Asteroid City. Mm-hmm. And then since we've actually gone and seen some movies, there's been some trailers. And after every time there's a trailer, Darla's like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> like, she's like, all those people in it, like, I want to see Scarlett Johansson, but she's like, I don't think I would like that movie. And I'm like, yeah, probably not. And then as we're going, you know, I'm dropping them off at the airport and there's this gigantic billboard for it. And Logan is like, why is Wes Anderson's name on that movie poster five times? <laughs> uh, and I was like, well, that's what they want you to know. Like, in the rest of it, none of the rest of it matters. You just need to know this is Wes Anderson's creation. Uh, and that's what they're trying to get across. Uh, yeah, I kind of figured I needed uh, something to, to get a little bit by, and I was going to watch a mystery movie. So I took, like, just enough CBD mixed with a little bit of something to see if I could get through it. It wasn't quite enough, because it was definitely a point where I kind of was just like, I don't know, I'm just not gelling with the movie. I I think I get kind of the concept of what it is and why I wasn't gelling with it. Um, I will say when the alien comes down, that was fucking awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was. Yeah. The other three people in the audience with me uh, also like lost their shit. We were were all dying at that. (laughs) That was amazing. Um, There are like, there were funny things and there are memorable bits. And I, I think it'll be interesting to talk about the wrapping of the movie, which that was surprising. Like, I guess the trailer can't tell you what the fuck this is about. And the movie itself can't tell you what the fuck it's about. No, it can't. Honestly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, like, I think it's interesting to try to get it like, okay, well, what did we watch? What is it? You know, it's such a, this is the other part too, is I'm like, is it postmodern, meta, modern, meta on Wes Anderson himself? Like... <laughs> Yeah, I was kind of trying to figure out where it sat. So at the end, I didn't particularly care for it. And I kind of think most Wes Anderson's on first watching, I'm kind of like, "Mm, no. And then maybe later I'll I'll watch it again and kind of get into it. Uh, I agree, though. Isle of Dogs, I liked right away. Fantastic Mm -hmm. Mr. Fox, I liked right away. I actually really liked Darjeeling. Was it the Darjeeling Limited? Limited. I was going to say limited. I'm like, that sounded wrong in my head. Yeah, that's it. Um, I really like that one, and I like that one right away. Um, yeah, and this one, uh, I haven't watched French Dispatch, so I don't know. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to talk about like what the fuck 
is this movie yeah. <laughs> less about there's not really anything to talk about like plot wise this is going to be one where i feel like we talk around it because there's just the plots whatever i just anticipated us throwing this uh this specific movie out the window and being like surprise everybody it's a wes anderson only episode <laughs> so yeah. we all try to Pretty, sort through his probably style. i think you can't talk about it without talking about that's that style the pastel elephant in the room yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh well dixon what did you think about asteroid city yeah, so I, I really liked this. Um, not all of it worked for me. I honestly didn't really get the framing device. Um, you know, the the black and white framing device where like Brian Cranston is narrating Ed Norton writing a play. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, what are we even doing here? And they kept coming back to it. And every time we c- came back to that stuff, I just kept being like, can we get back to Asteroid City, please? Because I like what's going on there. Um, most of the movie is in color in Asteroid City, and I think that part is really good. Um, I thought this was probably the hardest I've ever laughed at a Wes Anderson movie. I thought it was pretty fucking hilarious throughout. Like, there was a lot of background humor that was really funny with characters running around in the back of shots, like, doing things that paid off earlier scenes. Like, there's that scene with the kid being like, you dare me to eat this, like, hot pepper. (laughs) And then the camera pan, like, you don't really know what happens. The camera pans, you're in another building, and all of a sudden that kid sprints into the back of the scene and is, like, chugging directly from the water cooler. And they don't (laughs) acknowledge it until, like, 30 seconds in. Like, what are you, are you okay, kid? Like, like stuff like that that I thought worked really well. Um, The cinematography and the set design were very Wes Anderson, very, very beautiful to look at. Um, The alien scene holy shit that was absolutely (laughs) hilarious like there was a lot of stuff throughout that i laughed really hard at oh the fucking real estate vending machine like (laughs) so much so much stuff that was like absolutely hilarious to me um but i think that like the core of the film that what and what really worked for me was the dynamic between jason schwartzman and scarlett johansson and i'm not going to remember any of the character names there are too many but um Seeing I think, as they have two names, right? Several yeah, of them are so and so as right, depending on what yeah meta <laughs> level you're at. But uh, in you know as the asteroid city world, the dynamic between Jason Schwartzman and uh, Scarlett Johansson, I thought was really good. And I think the the best Wes Anderson movies are the ones where he's really investing in the core characters. And I think like French Dispatch suffers because he doesn't do that. That's only about style and his aesthetic and it, to the detriment of the characters and the story in that movie. And uh, Isle of Dogs is my favorite Wes Anderson movie. And I think that works really well because you really care about these characters and, and what they're going through. Grand Budapest Hotel, I think, is, you know, in a similar way, that's, you know, probably my second favorite of his. And, um, you know, Asteroid City is below those for me, but, you know, probably like second tier Wes Anderson. And, um, it almost reminded me of Rushmore a little bit. Have you guys seen Rushmore? I haven't seen um, it. Yeah. Yeah, that stars a much younger Jason Schwartzman, and it's a very melancholy film, and that, that character is just very kind of sad and throughout the movie, and it has this, um, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but that movie just has this melancholy vibe that really draws you in and makes you identify with that character. And I think I, I identified that with him in this role as well and him and Scarlett Johansson's characters are both very broken people and they even call that out at one point like Scarlett Johansson's like yeah I guess we kind of identify with each other because we're kind of shit people who have gone through a lot of rough things in our lives and we're like trying to deal with that and um you know it, it's interesting to me that Anderson 
similar to the way Brisson does, and as we talked about last week in A Man Escaped, and John, you mentioned this to me the other day, that you know he kind of accentuates emotion through a lack of um, emotion in his characters. Like they're, they're saying their lines in a very dry way, but the way the film is made um, kind of accentuates the, uh, the feelings that they're, they're going through. And you can kind of see these tortured souls in those two characters and really feel kind of the depths of their sorrow and the experiences they're going through. Schwartzman dealing with the death of his wife, Scarlett Johansson dealing with a series of awful relationships and some career issues and stuff. And um, I really liked when those two were on camera and kind of connecting and, um, you know, finding somebody in the world that they could identify with and, um, you know, share their, their burdens with that I thought was, um, just kind of beautiful to see. So, um, yeah, o overall, I liked this a lot. Again, didn't really love the framing stuff, but, um, you know, that's probably a quarter of the movie and the rest of it is in Asteroid City and it's pretty funny or very touching in, in different parts. And, um, I thought it was pretty good. So. I'm kind of reminded because of the way that the meta structure is laid out for this movie um, and the way that it's like layered as it's a television broadcast about the true story of somebody writing a play, but also the play itself Yeah, um, has the same vibe as, and I've been watching it recently or rewatching it, uh, the spoils of Babylon, which I've talked about. It's like a parody yeah, series by yes. funny or die. And there's kind of this aspect of, um, creating the so like in most movies when somebody's acting uh th they're doing a particular oh your direction is this here's your motivation and all you ever see is the performance in the actual frame itself and you're like okay i don't know what that actor is conjuring to get to that moment but then there's something like this or spoils where or black dynamite is another great example mm. where the motivation is needed to be two layers deep where you're like this actor who's portraying this character is doing it this way because their backstory is this thing that trips me up so much when I'm thinking about the movie, <laughs> but I find that to be maybe what I like the most about it is the framing device because it's something I haven't seen in a Wes Anderson film. And I, I don't like it so much for like just the meta aspect alone, but trying to think about a Wes Anderson film from that perspective in his frame where most of the characters in any of his movies already have a muted nature to their emotions. Now adding another layer of this is this person's history and backstory, like Scarlett Johansson's character on the train um, where she's like that comedic scene where the boy that plays uh, Jason Schwartzman's son, uh, like the understudy comes in and is like, mm. he gave me three notes to read to you. If these were the things that you were doing. And then he just reads all three of them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's like really funny, but also contributes to like, there's that actor and how she feels there is different than how she might be feeling or what she's conveying in asteroid city. I found that to be a captivating and interesting. Uh, I don't know if I want to cynically just call it a gimmick, but <laughs> something that like Wes Anderson has not tried. And I thought it, made everything feel fresh. Cause I was trying to think about it from that perspective. Um, so I don't know. I, I can't think of any other media that tries to do that beyond what I've listed spoils in black dynamite. Um, but, uh, I, I'm curious what y'all's thoughts are. If you know of any other films that try to do a meta thing like that, I guess Tropic Thunder kind of, but not yeah, really. That came to mind because you mentioned this in the Tropic Thunder episode about Jack Black's character. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, Ryan, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it it's an interesting concept, but I think the way that it played out <laughs> didn't quite work. Um, 
it, it yeah <laughs> the, he also plays with the aspect ratio there he gives us like a traditional tv right. aspect ratio anytime in black and white yep. uh in, in in the previous scenes and then full color modern aspect ratio in asteroid city um i think that what i struggle with is that none of the characters that i did really necessarily feel that depth um mm. we do see a little bit of scarlett johansson and we do see some of Schwartzman's character, especially Schwartzman, as he develops the mm-hmm. character and then kind of at the end where he's trying to figure out like what, why his character is motivated in particular ways. Um, and I think that's almost because the playwright's a bad playwright or something. Like that's what I was trying to figure out because there's no conflict in the movie. It presents itself with all this, like, suppose, you know, so you, you can run it through the trailer and be like, oh, my wife died. And I haven't told my kids. And he tells his kids. And my, you know, my father-in-law hates me. And then he shows up and he's like, I accept you, whatever you need. Like, right? Like, all the conflict in this movie immediately disappears, right? It's like the kid, the general, like, gets the kid and he's like, oh, this is treason. They just let him go. Right, Like, they don't really care. Yeah, like, everything just kind of, like, continues, which I think at the end, right, like, it sort of just continues afterwards. There are these things that we see that just are never resolved, like the car chase the or whatever chase the hell it is several times yeah that th- it just never really goes anywhere it's not resolved like things like that so i was like the play's kind of like not good if you look at it as a as play mm-hmm. um and so i kind of felt like with this yeah, then one of the other things i feel like anderson struggles with and by the way it was grand budapest that i like not Darjeeling limited oh, okay. getting uh, them all mixed up in one giant uh changing aspect ratio centered color yeah. palette nonsense <laughs> um he has so many good actors in so many roles, sometimes off type. Edward Norton cannot do an accent. I don't know why people keep doing that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what if he was told it, to do a bad accent, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Maybe because it was the pl- it was the TV show of the play. Yeah, it was the TV play. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a pretty good McConaughey impression. I guess like he was hitting those right, S's yeah. real hard, like McConaughey does. You know. Um. Then, then I think it's almost distracting because a lot of times you can't see beyond them. I agree. I think Schwartzman in particular is really in this character. Uh, and I felt like this was a character that wasn't one of our like stolen archetypes for another Wes Anderson film. Like he kind of yeah. replays the same type of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, there's these little stories that don't have any weight or depth or go very far. And then the whole movie kind of doesn't necessarily. So I don't know. I was kind of lost on the. I think it is trying to say like one thing and it sort of pulls that off the kind of like, I don't know, feeling of like, what, what does this mean to me? And it's like, I don't know. It's kind of just the end of, of the movie, I felt like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, what, what the movie's trying to say through the framing device, I, I don't know. Uh, I'd be interested to hear what you guys think on that. To me, what I really liked was just the, like the character dynamics of the the characters in Asteroid City, and the humor was was so good throughout. I think, like trying to combine it all into this one cohesive thing, I think is almost a mistake. Like it's the movie is doing so many things, and like even like there's that scene in the framing device where Schwartzman comes out of you know walks off stage, goes to find Adrian Brody, and he's like, I don't. 
understand my character motivation. I don't really understand what I'm doing. And he's like, no, you're doing great. You just got to keep doing it. It doesn't matter that you don't understand. And um, like I saw the movie with a friend of mine and she was like, I, I didn't get it. And I was like, well, I don't know that you're supposed to necessarily. Like it's Wes Anderson. He's doing his thing. And like, it's not necessarily going to be something that has a traditional story that is uh, telling you how to think about the movie he's like creating something interesting and some of the stuff works some of the stuff doesn't and you got to kind of watch it and appreciate what you liked about it um but yeah i don't know i think it, it worked better for me because there was stuff that i really liked in it I, I agree with a lot of your comments ryan about um you know the television show play thing but um yeah it, it's it's interesting that we kind of have different thoughts on that framing device and th that it worked well for you, John, and didn't land as well for, for Ryan and me. Yeah. Um, so in terms of trying to just analyze what happened in this movie, there were so many moments where it's like when I watch it, I didn't get any of it. Yeah. I had the same experience where I was like, I don't know what that means. I don't know why this is happening, but it dealt with, it's one of those things that I've always wrestled with, with the Wes Anderson film, which is, um, really separating out and to an extent like Brisson's films too, which I haven't seen, you know, I've, I've only seen a man escaped and I've only seen Largent, but Largent still kind of puzzles me trying to like analyze what any of the character motivations are like why mm -hmm. characters react a certain way. Cause it's not naturalistic in a way. Um, Wes Anderson has that same vibe where characters will deliver like rapid lines back and forth. And then somebody will like slap somebody or there's violence that happens and it's slapsticky and weird, but it's like in that world, it's grounded as like real violence, like watching the violence in fantastic Mr. Fox. It's funny and comical in like a Looney Tunes way, but somebody gets their tail ripped off and that's like yeah. genuinely <laughs> traumatic. But in the moment you're like, huh, well, that was weird. And when you think back on it, it, it kind of unfolds in this strange way. So yeah. the more that I thought about it, because uh, Jason Schwartzman's character, kind of one of the main things he has a crisis with is the beginning of the movie. Movies told in three acts, and it will tell you that, um, and it, <laughs> yeah. and it will show you any time that it's transitioning scenes too. Um, I got tired of that pretty quickly. Yeah, I got that was like the only detriment for me. It was like, all right, I can't, I'm done. Like, just mm -hmm. switch back and forth. It's fine. Um, if it's like you know, acts or chapters, I can be more okay. It was like scenes one to three, scenes four to six. It just yeah, kept yeah. coming in so frequently. And it wasn't like, um, you know, I like worst person in the world does that a lot, right? It has like 12 chapters in a prologue, but, uh, or in an epilogue, but it's all the chapters have names that like make sense with what happens. And it's like, oh, I can understand what they were trying to do with this because of the, the chapter name. And it kind of flows together in a way that is satisfying. And this, I was just like, you're just throwing scene numbers at me for no reason. I don't I don't really understand what we're doing here. Well, and yeah, it, it doesn't it throw some out the window by act three. I was yeah, like, it's like, I, oh, I we're just not going to do that like, anymore. It will proceed yeah. without interruption or something is what uh -huh. it says. Yeah. In and, then when it, <laughs> and then it does get interrupted and we miss some scenes because Schwartzman misses his cue. Right. Yeah. And, it, and it also that whole act three this is where I'm like, he's a hack writer because the whole act three is just like a week passed. Everything's clean, cleared up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The alien comes because yeah, when Ryan was talking about how there's no conflict, uh to to an extent, like there's two conflicts I see being in the meta and the non-meta um from this movie's perspective. And they both get resolved in a way where they're just like hand waved. Uh the two conflicts I see are the alien's arrival is a conflict, 
Um, the aliens arrival is a conflict because it causes existentialism, like problems with existentialism. All of the kids continue to iterate that in uh, in Maya Hawk's class mm. when they're just like, so now there's an alien around. <laughs> like, whatever. Um, that is funny, her constant <laughs> efforts to try to teach them about the solar system, it, w- avoiding the fact that we now know that extraterrestrials exist. Yeah, like, and, the, the, and Montana's love for her, I guess. <laughs> the fucking cowboy dude stepping in. Um, and the other conflict is Jason Schwartzman's as an actor who emerges. It's like, I think of Jim and Andy when I think of Jason Schwartzman's arc in a strange way, because he shows up in that, uh, the scene where, um, it's the meta scene. He's, he's talking to Edward Norton. It's when he gets the part basically. And there's a whole back and forth about, he wants to be in the play and Edward Norton's like, I, I was going to see you later. I don't want to see you now. And there's kind of a romance that sparks between them, but he delivers like a monologue and it just leaves Edward Norton, you know, in shock. And he's like, why do you think that he puts his hand on the grill? And it's like that scene doesn't happen for, you know, 40 minutes or something. And he's like, oh, because he wants to change his mind about why his heart's racing so fast in the scene. Um, and that hand on the grill, that question of like, why do you think this character is doing this? What's your motivation? That's the crisis I see in the meta is Jason Schwartzman, like loses himself in the character and then doesn't understand what the character's doing. That's different from what he's doing. And that causes an existential crisis at the meta level. So then you have these two moments where one is an alien coming down and everybody's like, holy shit, what is the implication <laughs> for humanity? Uh, and the military's trying to sort it out. And the other is on the, the stage. The actor is like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore up here. I don't actually know what this is supposed to be or what the emotion is I'm trying to generate. And Adrian Brody being like, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Like you're doing a great job, which there's also a scene with spoilers, Margot Robbie, where she recites an unseen scene that'll never be in the play. It was cut. Mm-hmm. Um, those kind of work to fix and kind of align uh, Schwartzman's motivations. Then the alien itself just comes back and dumps the fucking ball that it steals <laughs> and like categorizes it. And everybody's like, huh, it, it categorized it. All right. Well, I guess we'll just go about it because everything's already fucked anyway. It doesn't matter. You get over it. Um, has honestly like a weirdly nihilistic approach in both regards where it's like nothing matters. This didn't even mean anything. Just fucking go about your day. Um, yeah. And and that was what was that confuses me at the end of it. Like, I don't know those I see as the two main conflicts of it. Yeah. Maybe that message is like, you know, it's okay if you don't understand, just keep doing what you're doing is like, we can't understand the, the universe and you know, we can, have these existential crises and uh you know have you know it's like hey there's fucking aliens guys there is there's <laughs> all this, this yeah. you know stuff in the news like we can have existential crises about that about religion about other things and try to figure out who we are and what our purpose is and like at the end of the day we just need to figure out how to keep putting one foot in front of the other and make the best we can of our lives despite whatever reason is that we exists so maybe, maybe that's kind of what he's trying to say there <laughs> i also want to say i know this might be a, i don't think this is a throwaway line but it was a goofy line i'm not sure if it's like ad-libbed or whatever but the alien also turns out to be <laughs> jeff goldblum who in the process of revealing that it's jeff goldblum it, like there's just a line he says in passing where he's like i played the alien like a metaphor you know what do you think about that like how is that supposed <laughs> to do whatever I feel like there's something to that that factors into it but i don't know i just am like it made me laugh in the moment because it sounded pretentious and, but Uh on another level, I'm like, 
I mean, the alien comes and takes something away from humanity. And there is a truth to that. Like we constantly have this like beating our chest, being the only people in the world. Like the fact that uh, the military general who comes out to give a speech about how important all of the cadets are. Oh, that was hilarious. And, Jeffrey uh, Wright is so good. Yeah, Jeffrey Wright. And the fact that he has like two microphones. <laughs> Anytime <laughs> they pull up the second microphone, um, just making kind of a farce of that. I, I was like, there's something. I just can't, I have no idea what those layers are, or how to peel it back. Uh, I should have gone and see this a second time. Cause I really just, <laughs> am like, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do feel like that. Yeah. I feel like the narrative of the outside meta piece is that like, they're putting on this play. They're trying their best for their motivations. Mm. The author dies Right at the end, like after the play, there's no chance to go back and ask him to fill in any gaps or anything. Yeah. Uh, I, I immediately, like, he dies, and my mind jumped back to the uh, I think you should leave where they're doing the baby. Oh, <laughs> the baby contest, and they lead, they do the in memorandum and they talk about how each baby died when they were an old person because <laughs> right because they talk about how he died in the in the car accident or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, sort of this, like, there is, you know, I don't. For, I don't think this is what Anderson's trying to say, but like the god of the play is gone, yeah, right. And there's no way to ask or follow up or anything. Like it's cemented in that one version of the play they made, and they can just kind of keep doing that now. Um, I think that the implication is he actually touches the grill and actually burns his hand, like the actor, not the character. Like the character is supposed to burn his hand, but he actually burns his hand. Yeah, because Scarlett Johansson looks like actually like, whoa! Did did you actually do that? Like, show me your hand. You actually did that, (laughs) and then that's the point that he breaks and like leaves. Like he took it so far in that character, and then comes out like, why? Like, why would I do that? Why did I do that? Like, actually touch it. Like, and I think the 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 alien comes down, and kind of everyone. I love the kids. Right, keep asking (laughs) about it because they're all. I think everyone in that town is like trying to gel with their reality with this new piece of information mm. like what it, what is this what can i do the background of the nuclear bomb and the fact that wes anderson has this like nostalgia for a time that didn't exist him and tim burton it both drives me nuts they're like past that didn't exist that they're in love with um <laughs> but the the nuclear bomb is like in the background and goes off a couple times and it is acknowledged that that's what it is and what happens and with I feel like with this particular time period and having the bomb in the distance, there's this and you know, I say postmodern thought that that's here of like after the nuke, humanity starts to rethink everything, right? Of like what what are we? What what can we do? What what is our place in the universe? Right? The war and the bomb like breaks everybody in the way that this alien comes down. Right. And it's like, what, what are we? What, what, you know, what is anything? What does it matter? Right. Like all these questions kind of come up in that. But now we're so much further down the line from that. And it's like time has just continued and it's still in the back of our mind that like that happens, but it's so kind of also gone. Like it's kind of out there. Um, And I think that when the alien comes back, it's interesting how like everyone breaks out into one fucking giant brawl. Yeah. <laughs> Which you would, the first time it's like, oh, our world is shaken because we have this new piece of information and we, we have to like get a hold of it. But when it comes back, 
that's when they just go like animalistic, like fuck all of this, fuck everything. Like I can't take it anymore. And then it just, then they don't like, <laughs> it just resolves off yeah. screen. Yeah. Yeah. I think like we need to talk about the alien scene because it's so, <laughs> it's so fucking good. Like, you know, they're, they're sitting there listening to this general give this speech inside an asteroid crater and the flying saucer comes overhead and an alien comes down on a little, like, it almost looks like a, a microphone dropping down at a boxing ring. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. Stand, standing on it. And he comes down, like it's, it turns to stop motion animation at this part. And the alien has the energy of a kid who accidentally threw his ball into his neighbor's yard. <laughs> and is like tentatively reaching down to grab the asteroid and like looking really guilty. And then just going back up into the spaceship and <laughs> flying away. It's just like such a fucking hilarious visual. Like I, I, I lost my stops because jason schwartzman's character is a photographer and is about to snap a photo and he just poses with the pose <laughs> and he still maintains that anxiety <laughs> it's just like yeah and it, it's there's such a great build-up to it too i love the score in that moment because it's mm -hmm. got these kind of chimes and bells that are like ding -da ding -da ding -da ding the whole time that it's slowly and it's magical there's kind of this they were initially looking at, uh, was it an ellipses? An ellipses. <laughs> an ellipses yeah. in, the, so, in the sky. Yeah, I want to talk about that real quick, right? The whole mm -hmm. thing is that they're here to watch this ellipses, which is the like, in a sentence structure, right? The there's more to follow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but then this movie, like there isn't, right? The, the big cool thing in the universe is that there's three dots and nothing else. But then a fourth dot comes along, right? And then it kind of breaks the reality of like, wait a minute it comes down and there's no explanation of any of it, right? It's like we're waiting, mm -hmm. you know, the characters are waiting on this answer of an ellipsis of the next thing and they just get one more thing they have no fucking clue how to deal with. Yeah. Um, the, I loved that. Yeah, just that whole setup scene too. All of the space cadets, you get like a bunch of, a good feel for all of the characters because you have my Hawks class, which are just a bunch of ravenous little children who are <laughs> always causing havoc anywhere. And then you have and like fucking Dwight. Yeah. And then you have your fucking brainiacs. Um, all of the smart kids that sit in a circle and like and have invented like sci-fi weapons and come to get yeah. their awards oh from God. the military. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> um, and they're all watching the same thing happen. And it's like, that is, it's, interesting to feel that swell because in that moment i can't help but think in a movie where aliens come to visit humans about all the other movies i've seen about alien visitation which haven't seen close encounters um but i have seen you know mars attacks that's not a pride point yeah uh, and, alien and i've seen alien and i've seen uh independence day and of course independence day always has like the biggest here's a swell for this gigantic saucer flying over or whatever I felt like this had way more tension for me and it was a Wes Anderson film where normally that tension seems to be undercut and it, it is eventually, mm -hmm. but there was quite a swell when that whole thing comes down. It just basks everybody in the green glow and there's total silence and it's just score. And you watch silently as the fucking weird microphone ladder pops down. <laughs> and you're like, holy shit, what's going to be in this? And then it's so derpy. <laughs> just immediately. Um, yeah, it was just brilliantly done. And I love how quiet the theater got for it. Like, and how much it was so quiet that the laughter was doubly loud because uh, of that. Yeah. Right. Uh, just brilliantly handled. But 
And the government response to the alien is so funny. Like, they're trying to convince everyone that they haven't just seen an alien. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's exactly what would happen. You know, like, no, you definitely didn't know you were seeing things. Yeah, you didn't see you didn't see a dude come down on a boxing microphone and pick up an asteroid and take it away. That didn't happen. (laughs) It was right in front of you. But you, you saw something else. Yeah, I do, the the Americanism of you, you mentioned the like they're there for the awards for the things that they invented. Yeah, three of three of which have practical applications, and one of which is putting an image of the U.S. The flag, US flag on, on the moon. moon. <laughs> and that's the one that wins like the grand prize. Of course, prize. it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then similarly, we have uh, Montana, who has spur noises, even though he doesn't have it. That's the like comedy of the, <laughs> yeah. the i didn't notice yeah. that that's Good funny yeah. yeah this sort of like bullshit of the framing where there's like this road that literally doesn't go anywhere mm-hmm. in in the most comical style he's, his spurs move and the roadrunner does the, the beep beep like it's a cartoon like it's all this giant cartoon framing the real um, life the, looney tunes aesthetic is so is so cool yeah like the roadrunner <laughs> yeah. and so, it's like it looks like it's either a looney tunes cartoon or like a john ford movie yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. yeah the backgrounds of those like Monument traditional Park. cactuses yeah. and the yeah the big faces uh, um but then yeah montana comes forward and is like hey it's okay kids like the united states has won every war i laughed real hard at that yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, I think this guy's probably pretty friendly, but if he's not, the USA's never lost a war. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, yeah, it's interesting thinking more on the staging of it too, because Asteroid City as a play and as a location, you think about it as a um a fantasy location where it is the embodiment of all these American ideals and mythology. You have Montana and the rest of his cowboy myth kind of there they're all around a fire and there's a kid smoking uh <laughs> the american way <laughs> and they wrote a song about the alien that they can all dance to with that kid um and you have the military and they're like you know all of the inventions that the kids have made the smartest kids are in america and the military gets to use all of the technology for their weaponry um you have all of this and it's set against the cosmic kind of background where the whole reason Asteroid City is important at all is because it was hit by something from outer space. Like nothing on Earth fucking matters. And these this alien coming down to collect the asteroid or the meteor like just sends everybody into that frenzy again of like, shit, we're not as important as we thought we were. What the fuck does any of this mean? The military trying to shut it down and deny it and be like, that's a lie. You don't even know. Like that, this is what we're this is why we're all here. This is what we're all about. Um that that seems to speak louder to uh, like what Wes Anderson might be going for in framing it that way. I don't know. Yeah. And Ryan, like you noting that well, Edward Norton is effectively the God of the stage who's written this play and then dies and nobody gets to ask him questions anymore. It just kind of adds a little more credence to a cosmic nihilism that might exist in it. I, and also a spirituality that is ignored by like the cast or not able to be reached. So the, I don't know. the, it is interesting though the initial reaction the kids get out the message that the alien is there yeah and it's people come in and they have a whole bunch of people come into the city and they rename it alien city like now they have something else they capitalize on this asteroid yeah they capitalize on it they have like a uh a fair i guess a carnival or something and yeah like within like a day that's the answer to like our whole existence is now questioned everything what what does anything mean and then it's like cool let's celebrate with the carnival and sell shit 
Like that's kind of, I mean, that reflects the reality of what Roswell was where you have like a conspiracy that's pitched of like the government covering up some alien craft and whether it happened or not isn't important. What is important is if you go to Roswell, New Mexico, now there's a museum where you have to pay money to get in and there's a gift shop where you can buy any of the alien models that are all just conjured up by humans who were like, yeah, some my cousin said that he saw this thing in the woods and that it just comes up on a shelf and how can I make money off of it? So like turning existentialism into capitalism is is America's game, baby. That's like that's what, what we, we do. do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. I, I don't know. Framed in Wes Anderson's whimsy is the part where I get tripped up all the time. Like yeah. I'm just used to so many other things that are so dark and edgy on the surface and able to just cut right through to it and be like, this is bullshit. And watching this movie, then picking it apart later and being like, maybe it's about nihilism. Maybe it's about existential dread. I, something about Wes Anderson style prevents me from hitting, actually hitting into what that is or tapping into it. Yeah. I think the thing that confused me the most was like the chanting at the end of the movie in the framing device where like, you know, Ed Norton is oh, come into, to this oh, like group of actors and yeah. he's like, I, I want to have the scene where everybody goes to sleep and like, I need you guys to improvise stuff for me. And Schwartzman just stands up in the back and starts yelling. You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. And then all the actors start chanting it. And Willem Dafoe is there for some reason. And he starts chanting it. And like, <laughs> yeah. what the hell does that mean? Like, it seems like that is the, that seems to be the mantra that is trying to be pushed through the movie and I was like I don't even try. and I I l- tried to look it up afterward I found some article about this dude interviewing the cast about what it meant and they had no fucking idea yeah what it yeah meant. and uh yeah I, I was like I don't, I don't really know uh what that like that scene was so abrasive and jarring and so different than the rest of the movie that I was like surely this is trying to do something here but I don't I don't know what that was is that the only not to detract from trying to dissect what it is but is that the only scene in a wes anderson film with a dutch angle so i feel like he oh, never man, it's uses, a hard dutch angle yeah, yeah. he doesn't Maybe. use and that's a hard dutch angle because he only does 45 degree rotations like i'm pretty sure wes anderson would <laughs> never do anything other than that um yeah that whole sequence so like the moment the movie ended i started trying to think on that because they're you you can't can't wake up if you never go to sleep is the logical imperative of a dichotomy like you'll never have peaks. If you don't have your valleys, you'll never have death. If you don't have life or good or evil. Right. And thinking more on it, I was like, there's so much in there too, where the characters are stricken with grief because they have, or don't have something like Jason Schwartzman's character, the wife, uh, him being newly widowed and trying to deal with this grief and understand what it means in asteroid city. Anyway, not the actor who's trying to understand Mm -hmm. how his character's performing. Um, like just, meddling in those kind of motifs of like don't be uh you know don't be mad that it's over be happy that it happened like to whatever guest bathroom says that uh (laughs) it's it's basically that that's kind of the the general mantra i saw was like you know it's you can't have your valleys without your peaks like you can't have your existence without other people or something else in the universe and so to think that you're the only one out there or think that there's nobody listening or uh, th- these kind of elements to it um, is kind of foolish and folly. And it defies the purpose of like wh- what we would, well, why we exist, why we live is to be with other pieces of the universe, like together. 
Um, yeah, I, I didn't do any weed when I saw this movie, but I feel like that's what I would have come out thinking. And instead I've just come to this point now where I'm like, maybe, I don't know. Um, but yeah, like that's what I got from the mantra. I don't know about that weird 1940s horror. That was like a twilight zone episode kind of thing. Yeah. Where just everybody starts doing it. Also, I got to say the one dude who every time people fall asleep, just immediately launches into sleepwalking. Oh yeah. Rolling. <laughs> that shit was so funny. I thought that there was going to be some like super crazy twist or something when they started doing that of like, we were going to come out of the meta narrative into an even higher meta narrative yeah. or yeah. something where someone was like waking up the, whoever was dreaming all of this shit. Um, the, the in credits song repeats those lyrics that you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. Yeah. And then a whole mm. litany of other similar things like that. Uh, that song, the track listing is uh, Dear Alien, Who Art in Heaven. Uh, yeah. So there is, and oh, there is that the prayer other, that the kid does. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. And they, there are some prayers the kids does. So maybe I'm not too off in there being a little minor spirituality. I, and I think that it, it gives that, like you said, life's meaning is given to us because of death. Right. And I guess wakings get like dreams meaning is given to us by waking or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, like that there, all of those kind of things. So then there is that, like, is it nihilistic that like, are we humanity? What is humanity if we don't have something to measure against? And like, does the alien then give them something of a meaning of existence without understanding it? Or is it like positive of like, Oh, Hey, there is more stuff like good. You know, now we have things to define against. Now we have, you know, something else out there. You can kind of look at it either way because the song mm. gives both of that like some negative things, but also some positive, right? You can the peaks and valleys, yeah, right. It's kind of that like this is where I was getting. So postmodernism has this like fight with reality, uh, a fight with traditional standards, right? Kind of like that was all those things that were breaking down. But metamodernism plays in this like uh, oscillating back and forth kind of accepting both things everything all the things and the fact that this that song kind of gives us the duality which postmodernism is plays with duality but it gives us like the real duality of like you just you have peaks and valleys yeah there isn't yeah. like a like why why am i on a peak why am i in the valley but it's like well they define each other but they don't they don't def the holes not necessarily defined um, and I think that song kind of gives that where it's like, here's all these things together. Like you have an alien and human, but why? Right. And it's, there isn't just no answer. Like all of it, there just is no answer. Um, yeah, I don't know the, like particularly that why he, that's the other part too, is he says, oh, everyone's going to fall asleep. But then it's just like a week skips. We don't actually see the, yeah. the characters fall asleep unless he means like literally like that week passes and us as an audience are asleep and miss it. Or like that way, I got really lost on like who's sleeping and who's waking up. Yeah. So and he's a hack because that's the other part too. He comes <laughs> in, he's like, I have no fucking into this thing, so I'm just gonna have everyone fall asleep. Like he's and he's like, yeah. and you guys, you guys write it for me because I can't fucking figure it out. Yeah, you guys just do <laughs> yeah. a bunch of random shit, and I'll see if I can write it. Need down. your acting class to help me improv <laughs> their way through my third act. Uh, wait, I, you know, you say he's a hack, but I feel like. <laughs> And this isn't the schlock talking, I swear. This is not because I've watched so many shitty movies, but I feel like I've seen a number of plays 
that literally end on not like a, it was all a dream all along, but that they like hurl you into abstract as the end comes. Um, and that you're kind of just lifted off into, all right. And now all the characters have a dream and that's just like what the stage usually does. I feel like in movies, there's a lot more logic that's applied to it because you're having to jump from cut to cut. Whereas on a stage, your suspension of disbelief is bought in a little bit more because you're always looking at the apparatus of the stage. You're always aware that you're watching something somebody constructed. And I think that that makes it more in, like, it's just, you're more inclined to say, all right, now this abstract scene happens. I think a Birdman <laughs> when uh, yeah. Michael Keaton's like, it's a dream sequence, Jake. Like I have to have a dream sequence. And there's like all these deer, but they're people with antlers and that kind of <laughs> shit. What does the metaphor mean behind any of that necessarily? Is he a hack or not? Um, he's certainly going for something, but like that was kind of where, yeah, things started to take this turn of Edmund Norton wanted to tap into like the subconscious for his third act. And he wanted to see on some level, everybody fall asleep and he wanted to know what their dreams would yield and then try to distill that into, we know that there's aliens out there. Here's what humanity is. And then he ended up with whatever his nightmare third act is people fighting each other and shit as the alien drops the ball <laughs> off. Um, but yeah, there's, there are those uh, just interesting moments in it that I, 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 I still can't even fathom like how you're supposed to peel any of it back, but it, feels like Wes Anderson to me was criticizing how you can always pivot and find purpose in whatever circumstance comes to you. Alien exists in the universe. Cool. There's an alien in the universe. That means that with the alien now, we know that we're not alone. That's like the positive upspin you can take from it. Um, on the opposite side, alien in the universe, and everybody ignores that and just capitalizes on it by making an alien theme park where you all come to have a fun time that completely like sucks the meaning out of what that could be or the positivity that would come for it in favor of capitalism in favor of just draining it for the essence it has. And that was kind of what I took from most of the movie was like an actor having a crisis. That was kind of why I felt like Jason Schwartzman being like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if I understand it is like Adrian Brody's like, you know, you're playing it well, you're doing it well. I felt like in that moment he was like, if you don't understand it, that means that you can't sap any kind of essence of naturality from it. Like you embody what it is. Um, and that to me was like, Hey, keep some unknown, keep some spirituality into it. Don't try to normalize like, Oh, you, you understand everything. We're geared to look for the logic in movies. We're geared to look for the logic in stories. Um, Ryan, you have a heavy thesis on the Berenstain bears. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're just those things where like lack of logic. Yeah, to, to quote the man who confronted Larry Gopnik about culture clashes, uh, just accept the mystery, take the money. <laughs> <laughs> to an exception. Well, but, yeah. In in the the play of Asteroid City, like I mentioned before, there is no conflict. There's all these setup for things that you would think would be conflict, right? One of the uh rooms burnt down and now it's a tent and they just take <laughs> yes. it here's your keys right. it's your funny tent. <laughs> it's yeah. Nice. yeah it's funny but they just take it right like there's no and then the you know the the relationship between scarlett johansson and schwartzman you would think there's going to be a problem they kind of try to keep it from their kids but they don't yeah and everyone's just kind of like whatever about it even his father-in-law is like all right i get it whatever like all the conflicts just kind of immediately dissipate away yeah 
I was going somewhere, but I'm lost. Does that, <laughs> does that, that conflict, so like we're talking about, uh, because I just kind of framed it as how acceptance drains things of their, yeah. their value. Do you think that that is but, intentional? The fact that the conflict is diffused at every level for these things is yeah. in a way something that's supposed to make you well, think like, on that. Even outside of the play, Adrian Brody loses his wife. Like they're, and he just is already like, oh, I thought it was divorce papers. And then she's just like, bye, bye. And there's like this amicable, like, yeah, we're done. Like, yeah. Divorce, right? Hong Chow yeah. in a very brief role. Yeah. 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 Um, Dixon, what do you think about all that? Uh, what we've, we've just kind of discussed. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, th- thinking through all of this with the, the film, the things that stand, that stands out to me the most is, is kind of what we discussed back you know, 20 minutes ago around, um, you know, like you don't have to understand it. You just have to keep doing it and, and just being able to kind of be okay with the cognitive dissonance of, of life and the inability to understand what it all means and who we are and where we're going and just being able to keep pushing forward and, you know, try to do the best you can. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting to think about that late scene with Margot Robbie where they talk about the cut scene yeah. that mm-hmm. I, I feel like that was important somehow, but it, I didn't get enough to get to remember exactly what she says, what the piece is, but I get the general impression of what it was. I was actually kind of disappointed that they actually had her in the movie because I thought it was pretty funny when he just showed a picture of Margot Robbie. It's like, this, is, <laughs> this was my wife. Or, no, it's, it's the kid. Like, this was my mom. Yeah. Like, that's hilarious that they just had a picture of Margot Robbie. And I thought it would have been funny if they just never brought her into yeah. it. But. <laughs> so yeah. kind of the lack of any character growth or conflict or anything when Schwartzman comes out of the play and into real life, this is his growth chance, right? He's looking, he's like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, I thought I got it. I thought I was this character, but I don't, I don't exactly get what's happening here at the end. He goes off and he bumps into Margot Robbie, who's supposed to play his wife in a dream sequence, which yeah. is interesting. Like, we keep having the mentions of the dream. There's already these kind of two realities that we're watching, right? The show about the play, the play, yeah. and then there would be this other, you know, subconscious dream level where he sees his wife. And it actually talks about like her being gone and let go. It ties back into this con- conversation about like, are we stars? You know, what's religion? Like all these little under themes that were there. The line that she gives back, like about the picture, he takes a picture of her and we get the line re- repetition of like, my pictures always come out. Um, with none of the rest of the movie has those things. And I thought it was interesting that that's the one like actually true character changed character arc. And it got cut from the play. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, I don't want to get too deep into my religious studies work, but that to me is oh, that please. ascension to Nirvana. I was actually talking with a friend about this yeah. shortly after watching this movie. We just hung out and drank uh, whiskey until like three in the morning. Um, you hung and, out and drunk whiskey until three in the morning with a friend that wasn't me. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dixon. <laughs> I was meaning to tell you. <laughs> I feel so guilty about it. My Catholicness. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, shout out to my friend Lauren. Uh, we hung out. And we talked a little bit about Asteroid City. We talked about life, and um, part of that was, you know, that you can 
Nirvana, people think about Nirvana as an enlightenment that you can achieve permanently, that when, you, when you've meditated for long enough, when you've achieved this kind of sentience over yourself and the rest of the universe, that you enter Nirvana and you never leave it. But in actuality, Nirvana is dipped in and out of. It is a constant reawakening and this cognizance beyond the abilities that you as a human currently have or the sensibilities that you've developed over your lifetime. And in this sense, if we look at this play under that kind of lens, or we look at this movie, I should say, under that type of lens where Jason Schwartzman's character um, inhabits the body of somebody that he has to uh, to adhere to all of the beliefs of, um, and he's portraying him throughout the the act and then realizes at some point that he doesn't know who he is anymore. He actually technically has ascended to another level of cognition and is slowly recognizing and awakening into this nirvana. And that whole sequence where he talks with Margot Robbie can be like the one wisdom that he needs, something that would actually kind of free him. And instead he sort of takes that as confirmation that he needs to go back into the play. He dips back down into sort of the realism of, of his reality, what he needs to portray. And he goes back to sleep. I think that that's where like the, you can never wake up if you're never asleep also comes in because Nirvana is thought of as an awakening. So there's sort of this, uh, it's like flirting with that, um, from, from what I sort of have gathered. Uh, but yeah, it, it is really interesting to hear that the whole third act was going to be everybody sleeping and what they would see. And there's no mention of whether they would awaken or not. And it seems like the third act ended up not really being that at all. And the only person who kind of experiences that is Jason Schwartzman just offhand because he has a moment of panic and crisis. I remembered my other hack gripe. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> that I was getting into. Okay. The way that, that it's written in Asteroid City, everyone just says their motivations and everything like they're just on their sleeve mm -hmm. constantly. And like the the most like on the nose example is with uh what is his name? Liv Schreiber. How do you say his name? Yeah, Liv Schreiber. Uh, Leave Schreiber and his son, the kid who ate the pepper, who's like the dare you know, me kid. I say constantly the dare me kid to do stuff. And his dad you stops dare me and to go it, hug like, that cactus. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, the dad stops and like looks him in the eye and is like, "What? What is it that you want? Like, why do you keep doing that?" And then the kid is like, "I don't know." Again, this like we the, like the loss of why. And then they they essentially like just say their monologues about like wanting more you know attention and father son relationship or whatever and then just move on. But like everything, everyone says every motivation and everything they have. Like we're talking about the general, like like telling us his whole fucking his life story. Yeah, uh -huh, when he's yeah. starting to introduce <laughs> like every person, you get their entire like story, quote unquote. But we don't really ever see any of it. We're just told by the characters outright this is who I am and this is my motivation, like interstage, right? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, that I thought. And then the fact that we have Schwartzman kind of break down and like, this doesn't gel with the stuff we said, like I'm trying to put in some character that's just not outright said is kind of where he breaks. Yeah. Ryan, are you saying that Ed Norton's character is a hack writer <laughs> yes, or that Wes yes. Anderson is a hack <laughs> no, no, no. writer? Ed Norton's character is a hack writer. Yeah, Sorry. I get, I get yes. that you're saying that, but are you also implying <laughs> that therefore Wes Anderson is a hack writer? Well, I, I yeah. as <laughs> writing, he has his dialogue is a, is something. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's good or bad. 
I that, come again. I, I come back and forth on Wes Anderson of like when the dialogue, yeah. like Fantastic Mr. Fox, I think is the best like example of his dialogue in a way that just like works for everything that George Clooney says and then like snaps or whatever. Just fucking, I love it. Yeah. Um, but here the dialogue is so almost becomes stilted, I think on purpose because I think Edward Norton's a hack. Well, that's very um, but, common, though, in Wes Anderson movies for dialogue to be stilted like that. Like, Yeah. Um, but it, I wonder if, like, is this Wes Anderson lashing out? Is this what the the Matrix 4 of Wes Anderson films looks like? Yeah. I don't want to compare it to that specifically, but it really is kind of that, like, yeah, to all the critics who say that I write characters the exact same way, I'll write a character who's a hack I, screenplay writer <laughs> who writes a stage play and it's just completely shit. And that'll give you this instance of like layering myself onto what a hack writer would be. I don't, it's so meta. <laughs> I don't see. I, I think like I agree with some of the things you're saying, Ryan, about like he's, he's finding like, he's not doing a lot of this with his original thought, right? Ed Norton's character isn't like, he's having to go to acting classes and get people to act out weird shit. He's like, the random guy who brings him cake is like, oh yeah, I'm just going to write a character that's just like you. You know, it's like, he's, he's not really pulling in original ideas to what he's doing, but I like, I really liked the asteroid city part of the movie. And I thought that stuff actually worked really well. And, and the, you know, what you're talking about, about characters delivering, delivering lines in a very dry manner and saying what they're feeling instead of showing what they're feeling. Like that's just Wes Anderson. That's, that's what he does. And, either yeah. that works for you or it, or it doesn't um and it, like you're saying like for me sometimes it works in his movies and sometimes it doesn't but i think it i thought it worked in this movie um and i think you know especially with schwartzman and johansson's characters yeah and that's where i agree john you talk about rewatching it like i do want to rewatch this and try to frame i just want to look at schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson as the actually the only people who actually lose themselves into the play. Yeah. Like they kind mm -hmm. of rise above their characters because there are lines that they say and they're like that emotion behind them that seems like it's more than what's there. Like, you know, I did the thing earlier of him tripping up Schwartzman, like tripping up when she's like, I did a nude scene. You want to see it? Uh -huh. And he, you know, <laughs> In the did I say framing yes? of uh, my, yeah, did I mouth, say yes? I thought it, but my yeah. mouth didn't move. <laughs> In the framing of of Asteroid City, it's a funny thing of him being like so stunned. But then I was like, is it the actor kind of flubbing up on his line? Like that's also a read. And yeah. that like right. yeah, and like I was saying, where she kind of reacts to him burning his hand. There's also the for whatever whatever fucking reason, Brian Cranston walks on set just at one point there. Yeah. I didn't get that. <laughs> yeah. Am I? And that's, it, oh. it throws off Scarlett Johansson, <laughs> right? She get, is the one that kind of like breaks out of it and is thrown off by it. And like, I want to go back and look at all of that and see if like there's actually, cause they're the two characters that get highlighted outside of, of it, the play. Yeah. Then as well, like the true it, actors. You think about the black and white sequences. It's Ed Norton, it's Adrian Brody, and it's Jason Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson. We don't right. see anybody. You technically see you Schwartzman's see, like. You, you see Maya yeah. Hawk and some of the others like in that crowd sequence. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. But, but like in terms of focusing on the individual, you right. really don't. So yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, 
Yeah. Was there anything else? Because at this point I'm kind of at a loss and I want to just watch this movie again <laughs> because I don't know what I, I, I really want to talk about the real estate vending machine. You want to talk about the real estate vending machine? We also wanted, have to talk about the uh, Scarlett Johansson bathtub scene. Can we just... Oh, too? yeah. Yeah. That was, you want to, you want to take that one first? Sure. Why not? Uh, <laughs> so apparently... Well, there were two of them, weren't there? I think there's one where it's the scene, Ryan, you were just referencing where um, Scarlett Johansson's like, I did a nude scene. You want to see it? And that's kind of like one of the first that's the first nude scene I remember ever seeing in a Wes Anderson film. Uh, yeah. They, and we only get it like through a mirror through a with no yeah. head with of stunt double. Scarlett Johansson. It's a yeah. stunt double. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, which gets called out. It gets lampshaded. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was very interesting, <laughs> but yeah, she's like, I did a nude scene. You want to see it? Jason Schwartzman's like, did I say yes? I mean, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. They go through that and they do the whole, he reads lines back to her and it's a really cute scene, but then, literally just drops the towel and you see like a full nude body for a second. I had no idea if Wes Anderson did Wes Anderson get like criticism for not having enough nudity in a movie. Did he want to do something like this? Uh. I'm not entirely sure what the fuck the meaning was behind it, but she also makes a reference to the next time that he would see her. She, or like she wanted to do comedy but she just knew eventually she'd end up in a bathtub with fucking a shit ton of pills overdosing. Yeah. Um, and then later we see that exact sequence. Like he goes to check on her and she's in a bathtub and it has all the pills spilled all over the floor. It's just the frame shock of suicide. And immediately she's like still alive and she really hasn't done anything. I don't even know if those pills are actually, she drugs, was staging right? a scene that it was, she was, yeah. it was the out. scene. Yeah. yeah. That was the, to- well, that was a scene. Now read the lines. <laughs> yeah. Again, there's another level right below that there's this other play within Asteroid City that they read from back and forth Uh that is a lot of the dialogue with them feeling out those characters and talking to each other, right, is is also there and kind of weird. Yeah, but I liked the the gag of of, um, I'll die one day surrounded by bottles in a bathtub and then you cut to that later <laughs> and it's yeah, under like oh fuck oh, it's got like a perfect this took a real pause. turn yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's like no music or anything <laughs> and it just fucking happens you're like holy shit um well uh yeah dixon what was the uh what was the other scene that you wanted to the real estate about? vending the machine, real estate vending uh, machine. Uh, i i noticed it before they called it out when they showed the row of vending the, machines the vending and there's machines. like yeah. cigarettes soda uh, different. So there's like a cocktail vending machine, different stuff. And <laughs> the in the middle of it, there's a real estate vending machine. I just lost my shit when I first saw that. And I was kind of hoping they would just leave it alone and not come back to it and just have it be a random background gag. But then they came back to it and it was pretty fucking funny where one of the guys is asking Steve Carell, who's like managing this motel, like, you know, what is this real estate vending machine? Is this a scam? And he's like, no, it's definitely not a scam. You know, you, you can get a real deed for real land if you, you know, put uh, 10 bucks worth of quarters in there and yeah. turns out it's like a 10 by 10 plot of land that is out <laughs> like behind the um the the comp like the motel that has like no water or mineral rights on it there's nothing there and it's a 50 year le- a 50 year lease that is then forgiven at the end of the 50 years <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Like, that's fucking hilarious like it's it's oh my god just like that is that is modern real estate, you know, just like you don't, you don't own anything, uh, you know, just 
the financial engineering of it all is just the just fact that it, like it removes any kind of of middleman who would handle the documentation or sealing of it. It's literally like just put quarters into this machine and you get like debt and <laughs> eventually yeah. that debt is relieved. Like you'll be fine. Um, yeah, well, they give you they give you like a a loan on the land, and then they forgive it to themselves at the end <laughs> yeah, of fifty exactly. years, right. and they take yeah. it the back. So it's like, it back. and it it's too no small sense. a piece of land to build on or do anything with to make use of it in those fifty years. You know, it's that's a, like, it's it's oh, a hilarious racket. Like yeah. that's uh, this is one of those movies where it feels like Wes Anderson's sharpest film, and when it actually comes out to criticize something, it's got yeah. really fucking hard fangs for whatever it's criticizing. <laughs> yeah, like the military argues about how all of the kids like prizes, the, their prize awards and everything are in service of like them getting the technology wholesale and not having to pay royalties or not giving a shit about the kids actual invention because they're kids I like yeah, the, yeah. they're going over the document and he's like oh no no if you're 18 year older you get to keep it but because they're kids uncle you sam gets to keep it all the like, that feels like the everything. opposite yeah <laughs> yeah when uh when i went to scotland recently uh one of my favorite distilleries is uh lafroig and i went there and they have a thing where you can join some sort of lafroig club and you get lifetime rights to one square foot of land on their <laughs> property and it's like i don't think you actually have to pay but it's just an absurd concept it's like you get to say that that is your one square foot of scottish peatland that is right there and it's like <laughs> yeah. it, it give, if you're in the club you get like one free drink if you come to the distillery it's like okay so if i spend thousands of dollars getting to this remote scottish island I can look at my low one piece of land. Maybe I can take a shit on it and yeah. uh, then I can get a free scotch. <laughs> you fertilize the peat. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's yours over there, but you'd have to cross a whole bunch of other people's properties. Right. So yeah, yeah. Over there. yeah. The, there's the mention of the, it's not imaginary stars, theoretical star. What do they say that have names? Oh, it's like yeah. Scarlett like Johansson's the, the fake character. Constellations the constellations that uh, uh, right. Jason no, Schwartzman's wife invented. Uh, Scarlett Johansson's daughter is like, oh, there's a star named that's after named my after my mom. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, Swinton it's is like there. a yeah, and who also has? She's like, oh, I found a star that's named after me, but it's not. They don't say star. They say like imaginary stars or theor There's a theoretical, theoretical star that's named so, yeah. after me. Yeah. yeah, which is the same kind of like bullshit. It's that I will, Yeah, totally. I will like say naming, naming a star after your girlfriend or you something. Can buy right. a star. Yeah, yeah. You can buy a star. Yeah, sure. um, I will say. I don't think Wes Anderson is talking about this, but there are leases in Hawaii that work that way, where the government leases the the land to somebody who then builds a house on it for, and they have this lease for like, yeah, for like 50 years or whatever, or 100 years. And then when that lease ends, they could just, like, it's the government's like re-upped them, but they could at any time just be like, no. Yeah, and you lose your house and everything that's on it because the government just decides they want the land back now, and you never really had it. <laughs> wow, that's fucking wild. Yeah, do you yeah. know that because you looked at leases in Hawaii, right? <laughs> yeah, I knew that because I was looking at, at houses in Hawaii, and there, yeah, there are some where it's like, hey, you can get this, but by the way, there's only five years left on this. Like literally, it's like here's a ten million dollar property, wow. and there's five years left on the government lease, and it could just go away. <laughs> we're like we're just warning you it might get re-upped like that would be great because then you would have it for 50 years yeah. but it might just go away 
Yeah. That's any bad. any of us could get eminent domained at any time. <laughs> That's true. That's <laughs> that is there. true. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> the trick is, if you live on that volcano side, nobody wants that. Oh, there you <laughs> go. The domain. trick is uh. to anger the volcano god. <laughs> Take the molten, the molten rock from it. Um, well, I feel like we've talked about all that we can really talk about with this movie um, because it's just, it's, it's one of Wes Anderson's weirdest fucking complex balls. It's interesting mm-hmm. to try to unwind and talk about with your friends. Um, but I, I, I'll pose one last question and that's the one we always ask, which is, would you recommend it? Ryan, would you recommend Asteroid City? No. Yeah. Such a painful look yeah, on your face. Yeah. It looks you like you passed a stone. <laughs> Jesus. It, it's kind of this conundrum I have with Wes Anderson a lot where I'm like, it, it's so fucking beautifully shot. It's so fucking well acted. Mm-hmm. The like editing cinematography like everything is amazing yeah but then it's just so fucking weird (laughs) on top of it (laughs) and there are things that are like purposely like kind of trying to go against like too much against being a movie that it that it loses a little bit um and i like i it's kind of that like hey if you want to watch watch a wes anderson thing they all kind of have some vague similarity to each other and i'm like go watch you know there are these other ones that that are good just good like you can watch them and they're good in themselves and you get all those interesting other pieces as well uh and so yeah i'm like this one's kind of a pass it you know with with wes anderson i feel like it really is like he has some a hits and then he has some like weird b's Mm. (laughs) and it's like yeah i could go watch one of his a's and feel really solid then i could watch a b and be like i know this was good (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh, that's a great trail off. Is Ryan. this one of his weird bees or is this below that if you're not recommending it? It's a weird bee. Like it's okay. not. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I can't really say that there's like a Wes Anderson where I'm like, wow, that that was bad. Sure. <laughs> right. Like, but there are some where I can be like, well, I didn't get it. I did fall. I did fall asleep in Steve Zizu or whatever it was twice. And I've never <laughs> seen that one. Yeah. Something about going underwater. Yeah, you can't, Aquaman, Aquaman, you can't Zizu, do the life puts me out. <laughs> The life Aquaman, Steve Suzu. <laughs> uh, well, Dixon, would you recommend this movie? Yes, I would definitely recommend this movie. I think this is kind of like top second tier Wes Anderson for me. Like Isle of Dogs and Grand Budapest Hotel, I think are clearly his best films, in, in my opinion. And Asteroid City might be number three for me. Like there's a gap there between Grand Budapest Hotel and Asteroid City, but I, I liked it a lot. I thought there were really a lot of... Um, you know, just really funny scenes, a lot of really great melancholy scenes with Schwartzman and Johansson that I thought worked super well. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I, I thought it was was super well done and um, would definitely recommend people check it out. If you like Wes Anderson, I think you will definitely like it. If Wes Anderson's not your thing, then Wes Anderson's not your thing. Uh, for me, it's like I'm kind of in the middle of the road with Wes Anderson. Some of his movies I really like, some of them don't really care for. Um, but this one worked for me. So, yeah. Um, I would recommend Asteroid City. I think even if, <laughs> even if you're not somebody who likes Wes Anderson, it's gonna be so weird that you're gonna have to talk to somebody about it. And whether you're <laughs> bitching about it or you're wholly endorsing it, it is an experience to be had that is unique to cinema. And I enjoyed that. So I'd pass that kind of there. I, I yeah, similarly to Dixon. 
uh, my favoritism with Wes Anderson or my feelings toward Wes Anderson change with the seasons. Yeah. Uh, it really depends <laughs> on the film and how I'm feeling about this. But um, yeah, when I saw Asteroid City, I was like, I'm going to see that again for sure. And I know even when I see it again, I'll enjoy it. And I'm going to try to pick it apart and figure that out. But based on the discussion that we've had here, we've dipped into so many different things about what it could be. It's hard not to recommend it for me. And I'm recommending this despite the presence of Tom Hanks in this movie. So. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even yes. talk about Tom yeah. Hanks. I'm well, good. We didn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's fine. It yeah, was all right. Tom Hanks did. He didn't uh, trip over his dick in this one, which is like, that's pretty good for Tom Hanks at this stage. And he wasn't career. and he wasn't putting on a crazy accent. I'm like, yeah, yeah. So, you know. <laughs> yes, he left the crazy <laughs> accent in Elvis. So. <laughs> and Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> I I thought at first that that was the character that they wanted Bill Murray for because this is actually a one Anderson without a Bill Murray yeah uh, yeah that he had contracted COVID and couldn't film but Steve Carell's character was the character that Bill Murray was that's supposed the Bill to be. Murray yeah. oh really yeah. you can tell yeah just the way he said yeah well, I, had sad, it, I had heard it was sad sack grandpa's too, kind but... of a good Bill Murray but <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> could could go either way yeah. Is Carell, this is his first Anderson movie as well, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. I don't think, unless he's been the voice in another one, I don't think he's I been I don't in believe so. He wasn't in Isle of Dogs. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I enjoyed him all the same. I thought he was a great hotel attendant or mm-hmm. motel attendant, whatever the difference is. What's the difference it, between a motel and a hotel? A s- size, the doors. Oh, the, the doors? No, mo- <laughs> motel faces outside, hotel faces inside. The fuck? If you go mm. inside and then all the doors are inside, that's a hotel. If it, faces out to the parking lot that's a motel isn't that like a fire hazard so it's in like some a, way? It's, a, is... it's a motorized hotel because you oh. drive up to your gotcha i see that makes way Never more sense that. there we go everybody today i learned <laughs> in this episode <laughs> i did like Carell's just kind of smiling nonchalance about everything you know he was like bringing out cocktails to people and they're like oh this is really great and he's like well it's really just the machine that does all the work yeah <laughs> then he was also just like aren't your children all weird and like, yeah. <laughs> like just i've never seen a man so casually insult children <laughs> dude those little girls oh the little witches yeah the little, little girls they were pretty funny too of just like they were not on the yeah not on the same page as everything else in the movie when they just immediately like the car's dead and yeah. he just, just tells them to go like ransack the car and get everything out and they're just chucking all this shit out <laughs> that's great um well there you have it everybody we have a uh wouldn't see it from ryan um is that a refute is that a hard refute ryan it, or is that just like a, eh, it's like a pass oh, okay it's well, a refute you go. he's a, yeah <laughs> You've got a, a branded soft to... refute from Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> soft serve refute. Um, you got to recommend from Dixon and myself. Uh, Asteroid City is some wild weirdness uh, in the Wes Anderson world, which you already know is wild and weird. So um, with that, uh, thanks for joining us on this episode where we attempt to talk about Asteroid City. I have been your host, John Garcia, with me as always. Was I, I had a thing. <laughs> Dude, you missed your cue, Ryan. You missed your cue. I had. We're just gonna go with that. Then I had a thing, and I totally fucking forgot it. I don't my no, you never gonna have it. Oh my god. Uh, and professional, professional. <laughs> professional actor and, and podcaster. Michael Dixon, thanks for putting up with our bullshit. Always hit my fucking cue. <laughs> 
Hey there, movie buffs, TV toughs, and all listeners in between. John here from the Afterthoughts Podcast. I just wanted to drop in at the end of this episode and say thanks for listening. If you've got afterthoughts of your own to share, hit us up. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Afterpod, or jump into a conversation on our Discord server. You can find info for this and more at theafterpod.transistor.fm. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.